2021 is swiftly becoming the year of critical race theory. It's been referenced thousands of times in news stories, and 26 states this year have proposed legislation banning the teaching of critical race theory in schools. But the problem is, what's being described or defined in these laws and in many media outlets as critical race theory, or CRT, is not, in fact, critical race theory. Hi, I'm Milton Allen Turner, and this week, I'm discussing how the CRT controversy has been manufactured and what the true goals of its critics might be by using the punch, parry, and kick strategy defined by Ian Haney Lopez in his book, Dog Whistle Politics. So welcome to the latest episode of Worldviews. When people think of the 1992 Liebig versus McDonald's lawsuit, many think it was an example of a frivolous lawsuit where someone spilled coffee on her lap and sought to get a multi-million dollar payoff as a result. But the woman in question, after spilling a nearly 190 degree cup of coffee on her legs, received third degree burns and had to be hospitalized for eight days, requiring skin grafts. Coffee should normally be served between 130 and 160 degrees, but the McDonald's company manual and policy required that the coffee be kept and served at a dangerously hot level between 180 and 190 degrees. Over 700 people had experienced similar burns the decades before the case, but nothing was done because McDonald's sold millions of cups of coffee. The plaintiff filed the suit just hoping to recoup her medical expenses and offered to settle for $20,000. The case went to trial because McDonald's refused and instead made a counteroffer of only $800. The $2.7 million punitive damage awarded by the jury represented the total revenue McDonald's makes from just two days worth of coffee sales. In a similar vein, people mistakenly recall that in 1996, the Oakland School Board was going to teach Ebonics to its students instead of proper English. The intent of the Oakland School Board was never to do away with the instruction of, quote, standard English. On the contrary, they were looking for better ways to lead their students towards its acquisition in the face of declining verbal scores on standardized tests. The Oakland School Board actually planned to teach Ebonics, or technically Black English vernacular, to the mostly white teachers so that they could better understand the complexities of their students and the impediments towards their students' furthered education. These are two examples of manufactured crises. Why were they manufactured? Well, the Liebig versus McDonald's case became the poster child for companies pushing for tort reform, trying to limit their liability against what they perceived to be frivolous and costly lawsuits. The Oakland School Board decision was an early entry into the culture wars and the backlash 
against the United States' increasingly diverse population, attempts to redefine critical race theory, and attacks against it are the latest manufactured crisis. To understand how this controversy and its outrage have been manufactured, manipulated, and maintained, I find it helpful to use a framework developed by Ian Haney Lopez in his 2013 book, Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. Ian Haney Lopez describes a three-part punch, parry, kick strategy used with dog whistles or coded language. The first move, the punch, introduces racism in the conversation through coded language. The second move, the parry, consists of deflecting any accusations of racism in the coded language by insisting that since it's not a direct reference and that it's color neutral, it therefore can't be racist. And finally, the third move, the kick, is a counterattack that calls anyone who criticized the original coded term as having, quote, played the race card and accuses him or her of, in fact, being the real racist. Part one, punch. What CRT is accused of being. 2021 is swiftly becoming the year of critical race theory. After being cited 132 times on Fox News shows in 2020, critical race theory was referred to 51 times in Fox News shows in February 2021, 139 times in March, 314 times in April, 589 times in May, and in just the first three weeks of June, 737 times. But despite of all this coverage, the true definition of critical race theory, sometimes abbreviated as CRT, has been intentionally buried or ignored by its critics. Instead, the attacks on critical race theory are based on made-up definitions and descriptors. Critics have said that CRT is a form of neo-racism that's ripping society apart. That's why activists like Christopher Rufo have pursued a legal strategy of challenging diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings that he calls, quote, CRT-based trainings through civil rights lawsuits. Christopher Rufo declared in January that, quote, Critical race theory is a grave threat to the American way of life. He went on to claim also that, quote, it divides Americans by race and traffics in the pernicious concepts of race essentialism, race stereotyping, and race-based segregation, all under the false pretense of social justice, unquote. Rufo further asserts that critical race theory training programs have become commonplace in academia, the government, and corporate life, where they've sought to advance an ideology through cult-like indoctrination 
intimidation, and harassment. Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana recently called critical race theory, quote, a fairy tale promoted by many, not all, but many of my Democratic colleagues, including the Biden White House. Critical race theory teaches that America is totally screwed. We need to just tear it down and start over. Senator Kennedy added, critical race theory teaches that the primary reason that America was founded was to maintain white supremacy, not freedom, not rule of law, not equal opportunity, not personal responsibility, but white supremacy. Critical race theory also teaches that non-black Americans are racist and that they don't like black people. Whether or not non-black Americans realize it, this is why critical race theory also teaches that white children are born bad. It teaches that black children are born trapped. There's almost no hope for them. Senator Kennedy concluded that critical race theory is, quote, a very fatalistic point of view. And in my judgment, critical race theory is cynical, ahistorical, sophomoric, insipid, and dumb as a bag of hair, unquote. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas has accused critical race theory of calling every white person a racist. Alabama State Senator Chris Pringle said that critical race theory, quote, basically teaches that certain children are inherently bad people because of the color of their skin, unquote. These critics have, in the words of Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, conjured an imagined monster to scare the American people and project themselves as the nation's defenders from that fictional monster. As the WNYC radio show, On the Media, summarized in its June 11, 2021 episode called Little Fires Everywhere, the term critical race theory has officially entered the GOP arsenal, like political correctness, cancel culture, and woke. The phrase CRT has been reborn as something far more sinister. While Republican-led state legislatures clamor to pass bills to allegedly save children from indoctrination, divisive concepts, and feeling uncomfortable about America's racial past, no one seems particularly concerned with what critical race theory is and what it actually meant to tell us about our country's laws, history, and path forward. This is the first move, the punch. Part two, Perry, what critical race theory actually is. To dodge or defend against the punch, let's attempt our own Perry and examine what critical race theory actually is. Critical race theory is in fact a legal doctrine Georgetown University constitutional law professor Gary Peller, who describes himself as having been a critical race theory for over 30 years, described the history of critical race theory in Politico. Peller said, CRT was first articulated in the 1980s 
by a new generation of scholars who confronted a kind of racial power in universities and in the law schools where they would eventually teach. As constitutional law embraced the idea of colorblindness as the ideal of racial justice, we focused on all the ways that racial power was exercised in supposedly colorblind ways. And while we have a number of different approaches and beliefs, our shared goal, broadly speaking, is to understand how these subtler racial power structures work, how they often pose as neutral institutions in law and society, and how to undo the injustices that they've been causing. Peller further explained in the article, there were or could be racial power dynamics embedded even in what's called knowledge in academia or neutrality in law. Rather than seeing racism as an irrational deviation from rationality, we began to explore how liberal categories of reason and neutrality themselves might bear the marks of history and struggle, including racial and other forms of social power. In an interview with Ken Cruz, a professor in the School of Social Work and Criminal Justice at the University of Washington, Tacoma, the Tacoma Washington News Tribune described critical race theory as seeking, quote, to examine the many ways past racism lingers, sometimes unnoticed, in the law and other institutions, and the ineffectiveness of mainstream liberalism in dealing with that, unquote. Professor Cruz also said, we're not saying everyone in the system or institution is racist, but at the level of policy, at the level of practice, it is producing racist results. The law professor, Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term critical race theory, defines it as a way of looking at law's role, platforming, facilitating, producing, and even insulating racial inequality in our country. Professor Crenshaw recently explained that critical race theory found that, quote, the so-called American dilemma was not simply a matter of prejudice, but a matter of structured disadvantages that stretched across American society. As Stephen Sawchuk of Education Week summarizes, CRT puts an emphasis on outcomes, not merely on individuals' beliefs, and it calls on those outcomes to be examined and rectified. Professor Julian Hader of the University of Richmond describes critical race theory's goal this way, quote, I think one of the things critical race theory is really arguing is that things done purposefully can only be undone on purpose, unquote. As an example, one possible application of critical race theory could be to examine the, the country of Haiti. The original colony of Saint-Domingue was one of the richest colonies in the New World. One could ask, how did it go from being the wealthiest colony 
to one of the poorest nations in the world. Some will blame the Haitian people and claim that they were unprepared or incapable of self-rule and managing their economy. But many analyses fail to mention the repeated French and U.S. interventions in Haiti that included forcing the Haitians to pay more than $21 billion in reparations to the French over 122 years. Since critical race theory is a legal theory, it is encountered mostly at the graduate level of education or in law schools. But that's not stopped overzealous legislators all over the country from introducing bills banning the teaching of critical race theory in public, elementary, and secondary schools. Some of the sponsors later admitted that they have no evidence of it currently being taught in schools. But nevertheless, they went forward with the proposed legislation because, quote, citizens are concerned about it. As Adam Harris of the Atlantic Magazine notes, for Republicans, the end goal of all these bills is clear, initiating another battle in the culture war. Our parry has been matched by the critics' own second move, their own parry. Part 3. Kick. What critics of CRT are really doing. So why has a 30-year-old legal theory been misrepresented and transformed into something else? Well, the first reason is that Americans are very uncomfortable talking about race. There's an old adage that in polite conversation, you should never discuss religion or politics. But in the United States, especially if you're white, you never, ever, ever talk about race. A legal term that actually uses that four-letter R word in its name was bound to be a lightning rod. America Magazine's Gloria Purvis recently interviewed Vincent Rougeau, the newly appointed president of the College of the Holy Cross and former dean of the Boston College Law School. Purvis asked Rougeau, one of the things that people say is that critical race theory looks at things through the lens of race, as if that in and of itself is disqualifying. Why shouldn't they look at things through the lens of race if they're trying to determine how to undo unjust domination of race? If an injustice was perpetuated through race, why wouldn't you use the same lens to analyze it, to bring justice? Rougeau replied, I agree with you completely. I find it very difficult to understand, and it sometimes makes me angry. So we've had to labor as black people under the burden of a racial category that was assigned to us for the express purpose of debasing and dehumanizing us and keeping us at the margins of society or even worse. And now that we're trying to break that down by using the same category that was used to oppress us, somehow it's not legitimate? Why is it not legitimate now in the pursuit of justice, but it was perfectly fine to use it in the pursuit of oppression? So I reject that out of hand. Georgetown University constitutional law professor Gary Peller notes, 
critical race theorists analyze social practices, and the law is a social practice, in terms of how they help to construct or maintain the subordination of the black community. We reject colorblindness as an ideal because being conscious about race is the only way to tell whether the situation of the black community is improving or not. As appealing as colorblindness might sound to some, it's also dangerous. It can lull decision makers wrongly to assume that once they no longer explicitly discriminate along racial lines in admissions or hiring, then racial power no longer plays a role in social life. Peller adds, asking critical questions about widely shared values always makes people uncomfortable, and understandably so. The opponents of critical race theory seize upon our critique of the ideology of colorblindness to charge that we are divisive, or as Ted Cruz puts it, that we are in fact racist. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the third move, the kick. It's the claim that the real racists are the ones who see race. By just mentioning the word or the concept of race, we are being racist. Peller continues, but colorblindness is an empty ideal that works to ensure confirmation of its own premises. If one is not permitted to see the social consequences of policies in terms of race, then disparate racial effects of policies simply become invisible. If one is not permitted to see the social consequences of policies in terms of race, then the disparate racial effects of policies simply become invisible. Racialized police violence disappears when no racial statistics are kept on police interactions. Racial redlining looks like simple risk-based pricing if one doesn't look at the racialized zip code results. The way to end racial subordination is to end it in fact and not to define it away. Pellerens, it's worth bearing in mind that what's really under attack right now isn't the boogeyman of critical race theory. It's the modest and long overdue change being ushered in by teachers and school administrators. They may have never heard of critical race theory, but they intuitively understand why it exists and rightfully see the absurdity of the conservative charge that teaching about racism is itself racist. This may explain why Christopher Rufo told the New Yorker writer Benjamin Wallace Wells in a May interview that conservatives, quote, needed a new language for these issues. Political correctness is a dated term and, more importantly, doesn't apply anymore. The other frames are wrong, too. Cancel culture is a vacuous term and doesn't translate into a political program. Woke is a good epithet, but it's too broad, too terminal, too easily brushed aside. Critical race theory is the perfect villain, unquote. 
Rufo explicitly stated this goal in a series of tweets on March 15th. He tweeted, We have successfully frozen their brand, critical race theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category. He continued, the goal is to have the public read something crazy in the newspaper and immediately think critical race theory. We've decodified the term and will recodify it to annex the entire range of cultural constructions that are unpopular with Americans. In the Wall Street Journal, Rufo wrote, State legislation about critical race theory bans a specific set of pedagogies, not teaching about history. Left-leaning media outlets have claimed that bills in states such as Idaho, Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Texas would ban teachers from discussing racism in the classroom. This is patently false. Rufo continues, The legislation in these states simply prohibit teachers from compelling students to believe that one race is, quote, inherently superior to another, unquote, and that race is, quote, inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, or that an individual, quote, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same race. The same bills explicitly say that teachers may and should discuss the role of racism in American history, but they may not shame or treat students differently according to their racial background. MSNBC's Joanne Reed suggested in an interview on her show with Christopher Rufo that CRT really refers to Christopher Rufo theory and not critical race theory. But the problem is that one can't just change the meaning of words at will. As the study of semantics shows us, words often have multiple meanings, and they may well change their meanings over time. But language is conventional, meaning that we all have to agree on the terms and the meanings of the terms in order to be understood. One cannot just unilaterally decide on the meaning of a word. Other speakers must also agree upon that usage. In Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, Humpty Dumpty decides to use the word glory to mean a nice knockdown argument. When Alice points out to him that glory doesn't have that meaning, Humpty Dumpty insists, quote, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. Christopher Rufo, Fox News, and conservatives cannot, like Humpty Dumpty, just make up their own meanings. But by the sheer volume of scornful repetition, They are attempting to make their meaning of CRT pass into usage and become the new conventional meaning. And this manipulated meaning of CRT has begun to catch on 
especially in school boards and state legislatures across the country. Laura Meckler and Hannah Natanson reported in the Washington Post in May that, quote, conservatives have seized upon the idea that schools are promoting critical race theory. As Gloria Latson Billings notes, it's no surprise that all this makes people uncomfortable. The moment you make racism more than an isolated incident, when you begin to talk about it as systemic, as baked into the way we live our lives, people don't like that. She continued, it runs counter to a narrative that we want to tell ourselves about who we are. We have a narrative of progress that we're getting better. In May, the New York Times published an article about pollster Frank Luntz questioning a focus group of 14 Trump supporters about their views on racial issues nearly one year after George Floyd's death. One of the respondents equated diversity with racism. The respondent, Diana, said, quote, I think when you start talking diversity, you're talking about racism. And we keep saying we have systemic racism, okay? So I agree, we have systemic racism in this country. And the reason we have systemic racism in this country is because we're seeing it again. We're seeing color, unquote. As Diana explained, many conservatives view the mere act of seeing color, of not being colorblind, as an act of racism. This is the third move, the kick. Casey Bethel, Georgia's 2017 Teacher of the Year, recently wrote in an op-ed for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it pains deeply to hear that even noble ideals like diversity, equity, and inclusion are being questioned. Bethel ends his piece by saying, quote, if it's the term critical race theory that worries you, investigate what those who support it actually desire for our schools and our state. Judge those desires with your heart, with godly wisdom and empathy, and then call it whatever you wish. But let's put action behind it. As of the end of June of this year, 26 states have introduced legislation or other state-level actions to, quote, restrict teaching critical race theory or limit how teachers can discuss racism or sexism, unquote, according to Education Week. And nine of those states have already implemented such bans. Ohio is one of those 26 states that's proposed House Bill number 327 against the teaching of, quote, divisive concepts, unquote. The language of House Bill 327 is eerily reminiscent of the language used by Christopher Rufo. Examples of divisive concepts include concepts that one nationality, color, ethnicity, race, or sex is inherently superior to another nationality, color, ethnicity, or sex. That the United States is fundamentally racist or sexist. An individual, by virtue of that individual's nationality, color, ethnicity, race, or sex, is inherently racist, 
sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. An individual, by virtue of the individual's nationality, color, ethnicity, race, or sex, bears responsibility for actions committed in the past by other members of the same nationality, color, ethnicity, race, or sex. That meritocracy or traits such as hard work ethic are racist or sexist or were created by a particular nationality, color, ethnicity, race, or sex to oppress another nationality, color, ethnicity, race, or sex. Dr. Deborah L. Plummer, in a May 30th article called Why Critical Race Theory is Controversial, The Psychology Behind the Anxiety and Why We Should All Care, concluded Limiting discussion of CRT in schools and standardizing the way history can be taught is not education, but propaganda. She continued, remaining passive or ignorant about how CRT is being politicized and weaponized creates a false American identity born out of racial anxiety and fear. Racial anxiety and fear limit our ability to be better humans. It limits our capacity to foster the kind of society where we can all live peacefully. CRT is something that we should all care about. So, why are RUFO and conservative activists and legislators going out of their way to depict and define critical race theory as something that it clearly is not? Well, (laughs) I think the answer is contained in the lyrics of the Parliament 1975 song, Chocolate City. Gaining on ya, moving in on ya. Can't you feel my breath all up and around your neck? The whole purpose is to rile up resentment and discontent among those who fear the fact that people of color are gaining in numbers, and in political and economic power. The purpose is to harness the anger of those citizens to the political and economic benefit of a dwindling few. Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings, one of the popularizers of culturally responsive teaching said, the thing about saying one race is better than another, I can't find that anywhere in any of the literature I've read. This notion that we're trying to make people feel bad, you know, it boggles the mind. But I guess it tugs at the hearts of people. Dr. Latson Billing continues, most of those critics typically haven't read anything on critical race theory. And as I've said, I think the critical race theory is a red herring. She surmises that the goal of the critics is to, quote, gin up a culture war. She concludes by saying that she's not surprised that the anti-critical race theory laws being proposed around the country are being passed in the very same states proposing new voter suppression laws. Dr. Ibram X. Kendi wrote recently in the Atlantic Magazine, for decades, right-wing thinkers and judges have argued that policies that lead to racial inequities are not racist or 
are race neutral. Case in point, GOP state legislators are claiming that the 28 laws they've enacted in 17 states as of June 21st are all about election security, even though voter fraud is a practically non-existent problem. They claim that these laws aren't intended to make it harder for black voters or members of other minority groups to cast ballots, even as the experts find that that's precisely what such laws have done in the past and predict that's likely what these new laws will do as well. Stephen Sawcheck of Education Week describes the CRT controversy as the, quote, latest salvo in an ongoing debate. Sawcheck writes, in the early and mid-20th century, the concern was about socialism or Marxism. The conservative American Legion, beginning in the 1930s, sought to rid schools of progressive-minded textbooks that encouraged students to consider economic inequality. Two decades later, the John Birch Society raised similar criticisms about school materials. As with CRT criticisms, the fear is that students would somehow be harmed by exposure to these ideas. Sawcheck concludes, as the school-age population becomes more diverse, these debates have been inflected through the lens of race and ethnic representation, including disagreements over multiculturalism and ethnic studies, the ongoing canon wars over which texts should make it into the English curriculum, and the so-called Ebonics debates over the status of black English vernacular in school. Just as the image of ebony and its connotations of black pride and Afrocentrism became for many the spark that ignited the argument over Ebonics in the late 1990s, so does the prominence of race in the theory and literally in the name of CRT, frightens many people today. Dr. Kindi has said, and now the Black Lives Matter demonstrators, cancel culture, the 1619 Project, American history, and anti-racist education are presented to the public as the many legs of the monstrous evil of critical race theory that's purportedly coming to harm white children. The language echoes the rhetoric used to demonize desegregation after the Brown v. Board of Education decision in 1954. In the 1950s and 60s, the conservatives of racism organized to keep black kids out of all white schools. Today, they're trying to get critical race theory out of American schools. Kendi continues, the United States is not in the midst of a culture war over race and racism. The animating force of our current conflict is not our differing values, beliefs, moral codes, or practices. Kendi concludes, the American people aren't divided. The American people are being divided. Trinidadian writer Earl Lovelace wrote, our experience 
has had as its central theme not slavery and colonialism, as is often thought, but the struggle against enslavement and colonialism. I would submit that the black or African-American experience is similarly not rooted in racism and slavery, but the struggle against racism and enslavement. We must remember that slavery and racism are not what defines us as Americans. Yes, all Americans, not just African Americans. But we must honestly and openly talk about slavery and racism, their existence and their legacies, and how they've not only affected us in the past, but continue to affect the lives of blacks and whites alike in the present and future. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and that you found something in it to spark a deeper conversation leading to greater understanding. I'm Milton Allen Turner, and I invite you to join me again next week for more worldviews.